0: Da, 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 Meanwhile, at the DC Nation. We are
1: tonight's <laughs> entertainment. Here we will read this <laughs> movie. The shark,
2: red-pulled,
1: dark spray. None of the Robins ever complained.
3: Titans, <laughs> go! Who's You're going to melt just like a real team sandwich.
1: And show you just how powerful I really am. Always, 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 so should escape my sight. Let those who worship me this might be where my power, green
2: lantern, red light.
3: But let the universe howl in despair, for I have returned.
2: We have no
0: more use for this one.
2: Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways DC Nation, podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC Legends of Tomorrow.
1: Hey everyone, Michael here. On this week's episode, Steve joins Nico as we continue our coverage of the fall 2016 TV season with the next episode of Gotham Mad City. And then Nico and I review episodes of Supergirl, The Flash, Arrow, and DC's Legends of Tomorrow. But before that, we're going to kick things off with a News with Nico, DC Headlines.
2: flash photos meet Caitlyn's icy mom in the wake of her chilling discovery at the close of this week's episode the flash's Caitlyn snow will seek out her strange mother for answers as seen in the first photos from the season three episode monsters seen in the ACC feed. desperate to understand what is happening to her caitlin visits her mom dr tanhauser played by the vampire diary susan walters a renowned biomedical researcher in the hopes of getting some answers about her growing metahuman powers but when dr Tannehauser treats her daughter like a test subject caitlin grows cold says the cw synopsis and brings up past wounds causing the two to have a major blowout hopefully caitlin doesn't accidentally kill her mother sending her down the path towards killer frost i guess we'll see next week on the flashes episode entitled monsters and that's the news with nico dc Headlots for this week all right guys we're gonna kick this week's reviews off jumping right into gotham's mad city episode six entitled follow the white rabbit Jarvis tests Jim to make him pay for turning Alice against him. Meanwhile, Edward meets a familiar face while Oswald decides how to tell someone his true feelings for them.
3: Gotham is certainly going all in on Mad Hatter this season. After a brief break to focus on Penguin's mission to quell the Red Hood gang's grain of terror, the show is right back on top. Luckily for fans, Tetch is perhaps the strongest new villain to hit the show since you are strange on the scene in mid-season 2. Yet, even with his storyline continuing to drive the show forward, it's not like Penguin and his new chief of staff, Edward Nygmunt, who were sitting this one out. I'll be jumping between topics once again, as this was a packed episode. Gotham rebounded this week with its best episode since season 2's Mad Grey Dawn. This series can easily get bogged down in ridiculousness, but it seems to be at its strongest when torturing Jim Gordon and putting him through an extremely dark emotional wringer. Gear thinks of the murderous return of Mad Hatter. Gordon, face down. A little bit of killing joke and a little bit of, well, the end of Batman forever, when Riddler tried to force Batman to choose between Robin and Chase. In fact, our favorite Gotham baddies were actually the center of what may be one of the biggest changes the show has made so far to the comic book mythos has last week's final moments essentially hinted at the prospect of romance between penguin and enigma penguin was in love with riddler man that was so great although nothing was resolved this week so it's still will they or won't they but does ed even like oswald bat but i'm happy they decided to turn this into an actual love connection slash romance and not just some typical bromance because this show could easily just tease a deeper connection between these two for years and never have it pay off. Ed's sexuality is still up in the air so we still don't know how he'll respond to Penguin's big decision or big declaration but the bigger question might be does Ed really see Oswald as a friend or is he trying to manipulate him? I thought of this last week when he played butch for a sucker, so all of this, given how Riddler is, may be part of an even bigger, longer con where Ed can seize power for himself. Either way, preventing Oswald from getting a chance to confess his undying love for Ed it's downright tragic. Moving on, as soon as that newly married couple emerged from a wedding, any self-respecting Gotham viewer should have known to expect tragedy ahead. That being said, Jarvis Tetch and his must not be late-referenced in Alice in Wonderland, kicked off the episode with a bang. Sure, the scenario in which a sadistic villain forced a heroic figure to make a deadly choice of who to save has been done to death poses such an interesting psychological threat to Gordon, and it's hard to argue that the show's decision to devote some of the episodes to its story, Mad Hatter as a whole, Mad City's subtitle implies, has truly emerged as Big Bad, of of this first half of Season 3. Still, the show's decision to once again reiterate the lingering darkness within Gordon is getting old. Touches misguided quest for revenge is one thing, but Gotham has been harping on Gordon as anti hero for so long that it's really starting to smack off desperation on the part of the writers. After all, this journey took up much of Gordon's screen time last season with Barbara as the then. Season three had begun with Gordon for the time being settling with being a bounty hunter private detective. He had found a temporary place in the world, in this aspect of touch. Storyline feels like a tremendous step back. Do you feel the same way,
2: Nico? You know, Steve, for the most part this season, I've enjoyed the Tetch story arc and his addition to the story as the primary big bad for at least the first half of this third season. However, as I've said just about every time we've talked this season and much of last season in Dan and my discussions, I'm not a big fan of what they've done with the Gordon character since the first season. I keep hoping that he'll be headed towards the light and the great character he is in the comics, animated shows, and film. And this story about him having to choose between the women he supposedly loves was a classic combination of the sadistic choice and always save the girl tropes. The sadistic choice trope is a situation in which a character is presented with a choice, any outcome of which causes something bad to happen. It could be a hostage situation like Tetch presented Gordon with in this episode, wherein if one victim is saved, the other dies. Or it can be a choice to save one's loved ones or save the world. The hostage variant, like here on Gotham, is often called a Sophie's Choice, After the novel and film. Also, in this week's episode, the Gordon story fell victim to the overly used Always Save the Girl trope when he chose to save Lee over Valerie by telling Tetch to shoot Lee, knowing that Tetch would do the opposite of what he said. This is a typical Always Save the Girl story. This was so classic to these tropes that I was bored the entire episode, knowing pretty much virtually everything that was going to happen even before it happened. If I'm not mistaken, this was also a mini killing joke reference as well. Well, which was disappointing in its execution because it didn't live up to that great comic book title. Not terrible story, just too predictably done for my taste to be really a great episode. So
3: I was I was pretty disappointed. Catches saw ass games are fun to watch, but we need more of a bottom line to them all than just prove to Gordon that you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. We've heard it before and seen it told in better Also, there's no way. Hell that Gordon had already developed feelings for Valerie, that rival the torch he's still caring for Lee expects that to unravel and the weeks ahead we can only imagine that Mario will be none too pleased about that perhaps even enough to call on his father we want to see more of Tetch's Saw-esque games implemented into the series and will Daddy Falcone do once he finds out what happens to his son and Fionnus?
2: Yeah so going along the idea of seeing more Tetch's Saw-esque games as as you mentioned I I think, yes, we do want to see that if they're better set up and executed in the future. I mentioned before that I like the touch story arc so far this season, and I would have enjoyed this last week's episode if it were not so by book. And it, it felt almost thrown together like they were throwing together a bunch of classic TV tropes and hacking it all together like a network hack writer does. This series is usually much better than even if I don't like what they've done with the Gordon character, they have always told good stories. This episode... It just didn't live up to that record, and I'm not exactly sure why. So if they go back to telling better Tetch stories, then I'm all for Tetch continuing pl- to play these games with Gordon and attempting to drive him insane or attempting to just cause him misery. But the fact that both the choose the couple or the kid and choose Lee or Valerie choices were both that sadistic choice trope I was mentioning before that just didn't work. It was overusing an already overused trope in the same episode. Give me something new and maybe it'll work better now as for Carmine Falcone I don't actually think he'll get involved at least not directly with Gordon he might send people after Tetch himself but I don't see him blaming Gordon for what happened at least that wouldn't make sense to me so I hope he doesn't do that it, it just doesn't fit what I understand their relationship that's Falcone and Gordon's relationship so I think I think we might Falcone become part of the story but only if it's sending guys after Tetch and almost working with Gordon rather than being upset with Gordon. I don't know. That's just the way I see it.
3: Well, the showdown at the end with Jarvis definitely dragged on a bit. First, Mario shows up and then didn't even get killed when he was taken away into the other room. Then Gordon tried to trick Hatter into killing him instead of the women, not knowing if Jarvis would just kill two of the women afterwards anyhow. And finally. Having to choose between Lee and Valerie, it just went on a bit too long, in my opinion, but the end result was pretty devastating. Gordon had to choose who died and he said, "We what a sick game to have to actually see through to the end. No one rescued him to show. Didn't have something happen just so he would have to be saved from having to make the choice the at la- the last second. He said a name and Valerie paid the price. Now did he know Jarvis wouldn't swerve right then and Kill the person he loved more, or did he think Jarvis would kill the person who he actually named? you still don't know the full answer here, and I kind of prefer not to. I like how it stands here right now as a dark choice that Gordon can never take back. How will Gordon be after this? Last week, he seemed to be on the road to recovery, and this is a huge setback. Do you agree?
2: Sort of as I mentioned before, Steve, we do know that, or at least we suspect, that he said kill Lee because he knew Tetch wanted to hurt him, and thus he'd kill the one he wanted saved just like Tetch blamed Gordon for killing his Alice Tetch's point of view from his point of view Gordon told him to kill Lee and thus Lee would never forgive him for that so in a sense Gordon had already killed any chance of ever being happy with her so Tetch would kill the woman he loves more so that Gordon is as miserable as he is now that Alice is gone but Gordon knows how Tetch thinks and he figured this out he still loves Lee he's just having fun with Valerie so there's no way he chooses her over Lee plus we've seen this scenario many times before. As I mentioned before, it is also named Sophie's Choice after that film and now it is also the crux of the climax of the 1993 young Macaulay Calkin and Elijah Wood film called The Good Son. In Batman Forever, as you mentioned earlier, the Riddler gives Batman a choice to save Robin or chase Meridian. In Batman and Robin, s sets Batman up with the choice to either thaw a frozen Robin or apprehend him. It happens several times in The Dark Knight since the Joker loves these sadistic choices. Reveal Batman's identity or or people will die. Kill the accountant, or I blow up a hospital. Save Harvey, or save Rachel. Blow up the other boat, or be blown up by them, or Ridley. And arguably the worst, break your one rule, or watch Gotham's finest kill a child. However, when the Joker does these scenarios, he doesn't just do this out of raw sadism, but there's that added intention of showing people that underneath everyone can be a monster just like himself. Think of his motivation in The Killing Joke, in in attempting to drive Gordon a good man insane with a single bad day. Although no kidnapping was involved, the choice faced by Princess Leia in A New Hope of giving up the location of the rebel base or watching her home planet of Alderaan be destroyed by the Death Star was another perfect example of this sadistic choice. Maybe the reason it didn't work for me in this week's episode was the reason behind Tetch's sadistic choice. While the Joker attempts to reveal the monster within us all, Tetch is merely trying to cause Gordon pain or at best drive him insane with greed. It just doesn't work as well for me plus i'm not really even sure gordon was affected by this incident because lee survived and it appears valerie will too even if his fling with her won't survive this incident
3: elsewhere in Gotham with so much screen time devoted to the Jarvis Tech storyline and some table-setting for the developing drama between Penguin Enigma this episode of Gotham didn't leave a whole lot of room for a third plot even Bruce Wayne was completely left out this time around yet Barnes' story is inching its way forward while interrogating a the GCPD captain lost his cool and found himself fueled with super strength at this point it's hard to feel. He is developing into a well-known character from the comics or not since barnes an original creation what do you make of barnes barnes's new roid rage abilities and do you know which character from the comics i'm referring to and could it be possible yeah so
2: i've seen some thoughts on this around the interwebs as really two possibilities killer croc or a proto bane killer croc is mentioned mainly because the way barnes skin around his eyes seemed to gain an almost scale-like quality after that drop of blood fell into the eye and every time he uses his super strength in this episode. But I'd argue we already saw a proto-killer croc in the first episode of this season that Gordon brought in for the bounty by running him over a truck and knock him out. We've not seen anything about Bane this, in this series, but this would be a huge departure from his origin story and the cause of his strength has always been the venom, drug, and toxins. So making it Alice's blood doesn't really make sense, but I'll get into that in a, a second. Rather, my guess is that Barnes could become Solomon Grundy for the same reason others have said Killer Croc. That thing his face and eyes do when he uses his super strength. It makes me think that one of these times it's going to kill him and only the serum will bring him back. And he'll have that Solomon Grundy kind of undead sort of thing about him. The other thing that could make sense is that Alice was a carrier or had been infected with venom. And that it killed—it has killed weaker individuals and turned stronger individuals into monsters or into, you know, like Bane. Thus Barnes could go insane and become Bane. But I'm not exactly sure that works. It might just be a completely new character for this this telling of Goth. You know, I, I don't know.
3: I totally forgot about Saul and Grundy. I guess a good choice there. In addition, Carmine Falcone apparently wants to throw an engagement party for Mario and Lee. That sounds like the seeds of a future episode right there. Likely after Gordon and Lee have had the chance to follow up on his decision to have Tech Killer, Buckleeper. Gordon, the Mad Hatter doesn't know no as well as uh, the viewers do, but we can only imagine the awkward conversation Goblin's leading man will have to take on when Valerie wakes, because let's be real, the show isn't done with her yet either whenever a party is thrown in Gotham chaos ensues. Do you agree Nico? The Mario and Engage party seems like a disaster waiting to happen.
2: Yep, I agree. Sounds like a great place for some insane party crashers to come in and stir things up. Will Gordon and Bruce be there? Maybe even Selena and Alfred? I- I'd probably put money. The whole gang should probably be there and it'll probably be next week's episode two weeks from now. somewhere soon it's gonna happen. Alright, well thanks Steve for joining me for this week's edition of Gotham. Unfortunately I don't think either of us was all that excited about it, but we'll be back next week for hopefully a better episode. And with that, we're going to move on, talk about four episodes that I think Michael and I like a little bit more than Steve and I like Gotham. And we're going to kick all of that off with Supergirl's third episode entitled Welcome to...
1: Sarah fears the recently escaped mono is behind an attack on the president, whose Supergirl and the DEO have been assigned to protect. At the same time, the hot button issue of aliens versus human rights divides National
2: City. Well, this week's Supergirl episode had a ton of reveals from the Kryptonian in the pod from the finale last year and premiere this season, not actually being a Kryptonian, but rather a Daxamite from Daxam. Wonder Woman herself, Linda Carter made her debut as the president in this week's episode, and we learn she's actually an alien imposter. Alex Sexuality was potentially revealed this week. The alien underground was revealed to us, the viewer, and Alex herself, and Miss Martian was revealed as well. That is a jam packed episode that really kicked this second season into high gear. So let's begin with the Daxamite, revealed to be Monel, a survivor from the destruction of Daxam when Krypton exploded and turned Daxam into a barren wasteland. Monel is unaware of Daxam's fate and broke out of the DEO in an attempt to send a distress beacon home to help that will never come. In the episode, Kara describes Krypton and Daxum as the Hatfields and McCoys, neighbors that don't get along. But in reality, Daxum was Kryptonian settlers that left Krypton to colonize Daxum. In the comics, they also are not susceptible to Kryptonite because of a change to the birthing matrix that went with them when they left, when the Daxumites left Krypton to colonize Daxum. It was changed and ultimately gave the Daxum the vulnerability to lead while the Kryptonians were vulnerable to Kryptonite. I wonder if if this show will actually follow that same same distinction or whether they'll go the easy route with making them all just susceptible to kryptonite. Jean quipped even in this episode that it was a bad time to give away all his kryptonite when Mon-El first escaped, but would it have worked anyway like I just mentioned because technically in the comics they're not susceptible. Now I have a crackbot theory that is probably due to watching way too much television over the years, but I suspect that because Kara and Mon-El had such a rough start, even fighting as enemies in their very first, when he first woke up, this is probably meaning that the writers are setting them up for a romance. Michael, think about it. They both have a longing for a home world they'll never see again. They both have powers and they have the same things that give Clark and Kara a connection minus the whole family connection. Doesn't this mean that they'd make a great pair for a TV show? Also, give us a little more information about the Daxamites and where you think that story might go.
1: Well, you're spot on, Nico, with your Daxamite history. At their core, they are Kryptonian. Just without the kryptonite weakness, hence the same power set. And like you said, that's totally due to a malfunction in the Kryptonian birthing matrix for the uh, Daxamite colonists as they were populating Daxam after they had left Krypton. In the comics, Monel originally crashed into Smallville and befriended a young Clark Kent, but after getting lead poisoning because of Earth's atmosphere or something like that, Clark ended up putting Mon in Phantom Zone Texan. Eventually, he got out and was briefly cured of his lead poisoning, even becoming Metropolis's defender in Superman's absence, was off planet. He was eventually put back into the zone. Zone though, where he stayed for another thousand years until he was freed by the legion of superheroes and enjoyed them on their adventures. I think the idea of a Kara-Mon love connection actually works really well, and I think you're totally spot on with that theory. It seems like, at least for now, the writers are splitting up Kara and Jimmy, and this would serve as good fun watching Supergirl train Monel into becoming the hero that he can be while developing some chemistry along the way. As for weaknesses, I think that it would be a dumb move on the writer's part not to make mon lead, as it would not only make his interaction with everyday items more interesting, especially being on an alien world in and of itself, but it would also make it harder for Cadmus to take him out, which could lead down some interesting roads as well in them figuring out his backstory, where he's from, and maybe even finding other Daxamites. I think it's also worth mentioning that because Mon Elsa has such a big history with the Legion of Superheroes, and because we've seen a Legion of Superheroes last season in the Fortress of Solitude, not to mention we also saw a flash of that ring on the Flash uh, last year, I think it would be a good assumption to say that somehow the Legion of Superheroes are going to be involved with Monel in the future of the show, whether it's this season or the next, I think one day we will see that happen.
2: Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense if they go the whole romance route because Kara and Monel would have this romance starting. They'd probably just get together, and then the Legion of Superheroes would appear, and ultimately he'd make the decision to sacrifice their relationship to go to the future and be the hero that he can be that they need. You know, exactly. maybe Superman is not there anymore or is unavailable and. Kara is unavailable by that period of time. And thus we see mon take over in the future. And that makes a lot of sense. It also puts Kara back on the path to maybe going back with Jimmy Olsen or, you know, going on to the next love interest. Yes. And it doesn't have to be just mon L. So I, I think there's a lot of possibility there. And you make a great point that because he has such a history with the Legion of Superheroes, that that would be a great way to sort of... Build to that, and and we know that that eventually is coming. So
1: yeah, and I mean it would be a great way to introduce them just in general as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, next up, let's discuss Linda Carter as the president. I think this was a brilliant move by the showrunners to get an iconic female hero, both Linda Carter herself as the trailblazer and hero she is to so many people, especially women, and the superhero she played, Wonder Woman, as the president in this series. That really gives the role an importance and immediate relevance in the in the story. The fact that she she is also an alien hiding in plain sight will give the story even more impact if and when that gets out. Also, I love how excited and nervous Kara was to meet the president. That shows the reverence and importance that the office of the president of the United States of America deserves that even someone as powerful, important, and not even human gives to that office. It makes me sad to see what this current political climate has done to the office of the president. Okay, alright, enough of my high horse in politics. Let's get back to this episode. Michael, did you enjoy Linda Carter's appearance as the president. How about that offhanded comment about her other jet when Kara was fawning over Air Force One? And do you potentially see the amnesty bill from this week's episode potentially going down the registration bill story arc we've seen so many times before? thoughts on the revelation that she's an alien herself, and what type do you think she might be? Well,
1: before I get into that, I also want to echo that same thought about the office of the president, because I think you're spot on. But again, I'll, I'll leave the politics aside as well, but I do want to echo those concerns. But anyway, my immediate guess would be that she's a white Martian due to her potential shape-shifting ability, but if not, then it would have to be some sort of species that can go toe-to-toe with either a Martian or a Kryptonian, and that really could be any type of DC Comics alien. As for the Wonder Woman references, between when Cart- Mentioning her other jet, as you mentioned, and Kara doing the Wonder Woman twist while putting out the fire that was put on her, I was very pleased to see that Linda Carter is just as important now to DC and to Water Brothers and really to everybody as she was as Wonder Woman back in the 70s, especially with this year marking the 75th anniversary of Wonder Woman's first appearance in the comic books. Yep. On the topic of the res- registration bill I'm honestly hoping we don't have To have another registration arc Just because we've seen it so many times before Whether it's in Smallville's 10th season With the Vigilante Registration Act Or in, as I like to call it, Avengers 3 Civil War The Sarkovia Accords I mean, it's just been done to death And I think we should just let it die
2: Oh, I couldn't agree more It's one of my least favorite comic book arcs It's one of my least favorite movie arcs It just gets done to death Every writer wants to have their cracking at it and unfortunately it's been so overplayed that it's just it's just well, so boring I
1: think it's lost its importance and its relevance because it's been overplayed now I, you know it, it worked on Smallville because it was secretly dark side. and it worked in the original Civil War comic book because it had never been done before. but mm-hmm. it, you know I, I think it's been done so many times not just in that but also in the X-Men books with, between Sentinels and Mutants being outlawed and stuff like that that we just we don't need to see it again
2: yeah I mean you can pick any major hero on DC and Marvel, and they've been affected by some sort of registration act. You know, I mean, the movies, whether it's uh, the comic books, whether it's the Justice League, whether it's, you know, uh, individual uh, books in the comics, everybody seems to have been affected by it. And it just like you said, it it loses its impact because it's so saturated. And that's unfortunate because I I think it does. I think the original stories did have a major theme and an impact that was relevant to the fear of outsiders, the fear of other that is so ingrained in human history that it it is an important story to tell but when you tell it so many times in so many different ways it sort of loses its impact like you said.
1: I agree and I mean I just always go back to the DC Comics arc Legends from the 1980s and Marvel's Civil War like the original stories because they're so good And and they really for the time had such a huge impact on the audience and the comic books in general tying into almost every character's specific personal story arc in their own books not to mention the miniseries itself and yeah i mean we've said it a few times but now it's just been done to death that it's lost any significance i think that it once had
2: for months now producer greg berlanti has been teasing that a significant character on one of his shows essentially the Arrowverse, which includes the cw shows arrow flash legends of tomorrow and supergirl someone would be exploring their sexuality turns out by all indications from this week's episode that that character is most likely alex danvers meeting and working with openly lesbian detective Maggie Sawyer, Alex has a few flirty encounters and is left on a wistful note as the recently single Sawyer leaves to go on a new uh, date with a new woman. Florina Lima's addition to the show as Maggie Sawyer was announced last spring when TV Line announced she would play the openly gay police detective in season 2. It's entirely possible this might be the LGBT pairing Berlanti promise, but Danvers' sexuality has never really been defined on this show. She went on a few dates last season with Peter Fasnelli's Maxwell Lord, but that was usually more about distracting him from his villainous plans, and it certainly seems like it would, have, it, it would be a missed opportunity if the show sets up the possibility of this relationship without eventually following through. Michael, did this relationship possibility surprise you in this episode? Do you think Kyler Lay's Alex is the LGBT character that Berlanti promised, and do you think it works within the story they've already set up for her character?
1: Uh, Unfortunately, no, it does not surprise me at all. I mean, I feel like so often the CW and TV in general nowadays overtly pushes PC agendas with Legends of Tomorrow referencing Sarah Lance's sexuality seemingly every episode and us always being reminded that Curtis has a husband on Arrow being prime examples. And it's something that I not only that I not only always see coming but I'm also kind of sick of seeing because they play it off as something that looks to be something very different but it seems to be the same as everything else. I mean I would assume that Alex is the character that Brillante had promised based largely on this episode So as and as to it working I, I mean I honestly don't know we'll have to wait and see but I'm inclined to say no. When watching Alex on Supergirl I'm constantly surprised and intrigued by her as we've talked about before Nico, but not in the sense that I feel the need to see her in relationship of any kind, and particularly a same-sex relationship that seems tacked on for the sake of being quote-unquote relevant. I mean, you mentioned the sexual tension between her and Max Lord last season, who, along with Lucy Lane, I still miss, by the way, and that worked extreme well. Not once last season was there any indication that Alex would be interested in someone of her gender, and quite honestly, as someone who's morally against it, based on my own faith, it's not something I'm really interested in seeing at all. And, you know, you have to understand I'm not a hateful person. I don't hate any Um, I just don't agree with everybody's choices.
2: Okay, I don't have a problem with them having a gay or lesbian character on the show. I think the addition of an openly lesbian character like Maggie Sawyer is a great addition to the show because the fact that gay and lesbian people exist in our culture is a is a fact. That, that is you know and so they should be represented in our media but I don't like the idea of making a character yes they haven't established what Alex's sexuality is and sexual preference is a spectrum so it, it's not hard and fast everybody is gay or straight there's a fluidity to human nature and human attraction so while people might be hardwired and most you know are are gay are lesbian there is the in between there are bisexual people so I, I, I don't necessarily throw it out that they didn't set it up or they didn't do it or that they had made her seem to be heterosexual and that makes it so she has to be that in this story I'm not saying that I just don't like the characters who have been in heterosexual relationships and are all of a sudden single and now they become the gay character that doesn't seem to be the way that I understand sexual preference and the idea that People are born this way, and that is – I don't believe it's a choice. I know other people do. I'm not going to argue that with people. I'm not going to say I'm right and they're wrong or that they're right and I'm wrong. That's my thoughts. Yeah. I, I'm going to say that I don't like the way it's portrayed on television. More often than not, I think it is pushing an agenda above being realistic. Well, I do if, it was, if it was realistic, if it was done right, I would be all for inclusion. I would be – absolutely on board i don't like when it's tacked on and you even mentioned that it felt tacked on in this case and that's what i don't like if they had set up alex as a lesbian from the very beginning or even bisexual from the very beginning or you know had some sort of hint that she had that preference then i would be all for this i would be no problem but the fact that it's like oh let's make one of our stars gay now that feels that just feels wrong it it feels Feels Like a disservice to the gay and lesbian community rather than, oh, we're including you, you know, or that, that's what it feels like. It's like, oh, we're yeah. going to include you now. You're going to be a part of us now because we decided we're going to make this character now gay. I, I don't think that's good. I think what they did with Maggie Sawyer is is absolutely the way it should be. What they're doing with Alex maybe a mistake. I can agree with that. Going along with this Maggie Sawyer and Alex Danvers story arc, this week we were introduced to the alien underground through a bar where all the aliens on Earth, well, in National City anyway, can get together and hang out without fear of being exposed, hunted, or being feared themselves. For me anyway, the most important part of this story arc was that it gave Alex a reminder that not all aliens are dangerous, evil, or deserving of fear. She mentioned that she'd been hunting aliens for so long that she had forgotten that not all of them are bad, and that is important for us to realize as well. Last season, we saw the physics professor that just wanted to help humans by teaching students and living in peace on Earth. But most of our exposure to aliens on this series has been the ones that need stopping, hunting, or sometimes killing. It was a a good move for this series to show the good ones for its change of pace. Michael, what are your thoughts on this revelation?
1: Yeah, I liked it a lot. It made a lot of sense to me. Uh, from the beginning of the series with John Jones, Kara and Superman himself, we've seen that not all aliens are bad. I mean, Jeremiah Danvers even risked his life with Hank Henshaw, a human, on this belief. With Superman in the past two episodes and Mon-El arriving and now potentially working with Kara, I think that now is the right time to be reminded of this. With Maxwell Lord being so against them last season and not his an his army being hell bent on taking over with Mariad and even with astra before that alex needed to be reminded of this so that she can make tough decisions on whether or not to kill an alien refugee in the future and when it is and when it is not appropriate to hunt one down
2: yeah that's a great point and i think we're going to see that choice and her be forced to make that choice and i think even maybe presented with the tr- the possibility where she makes the decision not to kill an alien and it comes back to bite her because she made the wrong decision in preference of giving everyone a chance and i think that'll be good as well so she doesn't swing too far the other way i think i think there's some really good story potential in all of that and i think it's going to be some good stuff this season we're going to see out of all of our favorite characters and of course alex is one of those for both of us now the final revelation of this episode was miss martian revealing herself to Jean and us the viewers michael what does this mean going forward for this series will she become a hero as well or does she want to just l- live in peace unknown to humans and martians alike in the comics McGann is a white martian but she showed herself in this episode as a green martian to john do you think this was a ruse or is she really a green martian this time and what is her true relationship to john in the canon continuity nowadays
1: yeah and the comics are totally right Megan is- is a white Martian although she makes herself look like a green Martian so that people are not afraid of her and because she has rejected her race due to their horrible atrocities to the green Martian people her and John are often depicted as having a father daughter relationship but since that role is taken by Kara and Alex on this series I would guess that we could see a potential relationship bud out of this as well this is the CW after all and as (laughs) for her becoming Miss Martian I could see that happening and her teaming up alongside Mon-El, Martian Manor, the D.E.O and Supergirl to face Cadmus or whatever threat that they might face by the end of the season. I could see that happening. And my guess is that she's still probably a white Martian in disguise, but one who is truly repentant of the sins of her people.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. i, I, I That's what my initial thought was as well. Just seeing her show herself as a green Martian made me question whether or not they were going to even bother going into that. I think we already saw a white Martian last season, yes. if I'm not mistaken. So maybe they don't want to go that route. Maybe they don't want to have to deal with the idea of explaining that Megan is a white Martian but she's a good white Martian and what that could entail the natural racism that Martian Manhunter might have towards the white Martians I don't know if they want to dive into all of that but your point about them not needing to go the father-daughter uncle-niece relationship that we've often seen they might go the the romance route this time because they are potentially the last two Martians around so uh yeah, I don't know. It, it like you said, it is the CW. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so this was the first episode without Cat Grant as a series regular. Did it hold up for you, Michael? Was there anything else that we should discuss about this episode or something I might have missed?
1: You know, I thought it worked. Uh, I really enjoyed the dynamic between Jimmy and Snapper, and I think that Jimmy really fits into Cat's shoes as the new boss very well, and I'm excited to see what he does with that going forward and maybe the potential concept of him maybe getting bored with his job at CatCo, and that's maybe why he becomes Guardian. I don't know yet, but I, I really did like this episode. I didn't feel like I missed Cat all that much although I do miss her I didn't feel like she was missed from this episode specifically
2: Yeah I agree I think they did a good job of not focusing on the fact that she was gone They mentioned it they showed Jimmy in her role but It almost felt like Kara was acting like the Cat Grant character to Jimmy in this episode rather than her missing it or needing it and it not being there. Although I do think that that is going to be a story or an episode coming forward and it'll probably precede the episode where we do get a Callista Flockhart appearance.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that.
2: All right. I think that's enough Supergirl for this week. I think it's about time we jump into the Flash episode this week, which dove into or focused focused on a rogue. I've been really excited to see that was the mere master. We'll talk about whether or not it lived up to the the excitement beforehand, but we're going to talk about the fourth episode of the third season entitled The New Rogues.
1: My name is Barry Allen. I am the fastest man alive. After three years trapped in a mirror, Sam Scudder emerges from imprisonment, frees his girlfriend Rosalind, and seeks to take over Central City. Meanwhile, Barry continues training Jesse, and Harry helps Caitlin and Sisko find his replacement.
2: With a title like New Rogues, I was really expecting more from this episode and its newly introduced villains. I enjoyed it fine enough, but if this is the best the new rogues have to offer, we're in for a sore disappointment this season when it comes to villains. Of course, I enjoyed seeing Wentworth Miller back this week, even if it was merely in flashbacks and holographic form, but it did accentuate to me that these two villains this week, Mirror Master and Top, were not Captain Cold in Heatwave. There just wasn't that same pizzazz. Indeed, this week we got Sam Scudder and Rosalind Dillon, aka Mirror Master and Top, both are the new metas formally aligned with the pre-captain cold leonard snart it seemed to me that they wanted to be bonnie and clyde but unfortunately they were played by two of the blandest most forgettable actors to ever play bad guys on this show
1: and that's saying something after last week. Yeah.
2: Now, maybe the Flash just wants us to long all the more for Wentworth Miller's proper return as Barry's best, sometimes friend, sometimes enemy. But did it have to sacrifice poor Mirror Master? one of the comic book Flash's oldest, most iconic foes, in order to do so? Then again, in naming the villain, Wells did say that there's a Mirror Master on Earth, too, who, like the comic book fans know and love, is not a meta, but instead uses a Mirror Gun to carry out his reflection themed crimes. So perhaps we'll get to meet the one true Mirror Master at a later point in the show's run. Michael, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here or something, but were at least these two new rogues not up to snuff this week? Because I know I was alone on last week's issue with Magenta. Do you like the idea that we could potentially get a better version of Mirror Master from Earth 2?
1: Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I And yeah, I do think that we will potentially get a better version of Mirror Master from Earth 2, but I'll talk about that in one second. But I, I did like the concept of the Bonnie and Clyde-type relationship that mirrored Captain Cold and his sister, or even Heat Wave, I guess. But Mirror Master and the Top were not all that impressive, and I was honestly slightly underwhelmed. I mean, between their lack of plot and the fact that Top's powers are nothing like the characters in the comics at all, that, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. But that being said, I'm still hoping that Cold and the rest of the other rogues are going to return and take on The Flash, as we talked about last week. I think the problem with Sam Scudder's Mirror Master is that he doesn't really have that much of a want outside of killing Snart, which he can't do because... because Snart is probably dead. I say probably because the timeline change I mean with that who knows. But that being said I think Earth 2's Mirror Master is definitely the way to go for the villain's next appearance for two reasons. A if the rogues reform and Cold somehow returns the Mirror Master that Harry mentions living on Earth 2 is actually the original version of the character from the comics and is the one who works closely with Captain Cold Captain Boomerang and the rest of the team. My second point is is that we had a lot of good Earth 2 villains last year. I mean from King Shark to Dr. Light to a bunch of of them, I, I I loved our a lot of our villains last season. and a new Mirror Master from Earth Two would be a breath of fresh air with character.
2: Yeah, I'm hoping so. I, I was really disappointed as well with this version of the Mirror Master, and I think Dan would have been too because we were so looking forward to his appearance last season that, and it never came. So when it happened this season, I think he would have been disappointed as well. Yeah, this week's episode went to great lengths to fix the issue that apparently many fans have been having. Having with the iris and barry relationship something that i never really even thought about but the fact that they were raised as essentially siblings from about the age of 10 to 12 until now is a big deal to many fans the semi-incestuous nature of their relationship has been an issue for many and this week's episode seemed to put those fans feelings of uncomfortableness squarely on first joe then barry to help people come around to the idea that it is not a problem with them dating michael first did you know this was an issue for many flash fans and second, what are your thoughts on that now? Did what they do in this episode make everything better with the Barry and Iris relationship?
1: Yeah, I mean, I knew it was a problem many fans had, and I understand the issue myself, but I was never really opposed to a Barry-Iris relationship because of them living under the same roof. In fact, I thought their friendship and familial ties to both Joe and, some, and on some level doing each other reinforce Barry's feelings for Iris and vice versa. I never saw it as incestuous, which would have been proper for me if it was, because they weren't initially raised together and didn't really come from the same wound again if that were the case i would actually have an issue with it but seeing as how this isn't the case i don't really understand the need to take the time to address it especially since joe has actually been telling barry to go from for iris from day one you know that being said i'm glad the show is addressing actual fan concerns but again i didn't really see the need
2: yeah exactly i mean barry was in love with iris before he went to live with joe right and iris right that that's a fact that we know from the very beginning it's not that they were family and then that love changed into something else. No. He was in love with her from the day he met her, which was before this point. It just happened that he moved in and lived with them because Joe took him in. I I never had a problem with this. I never thought of them as true brother and sister. They were family, but in the loosest sense of the word and and the idea more that there was love in their life and their, their love for each Other that made them family And that's what a marriage does Ultimately too. love of two people Forms a a family and so I never had a problem with it I, I Didn't realize it was such a big deal To a lot of people now that I know That I understand why they felt The need to bring it into this And kind of play off of that and Give it a little bit of humor to Try and ease people into Something that they've been having such an issue With I think it was successful Especially not knowing that it was an issue shoot in the first place yeah but i i thought it was successful and i don't think they need to harp on it or go back and and deal with it again i think that this has done the trick
1: yeah i agree and honestly and i think it was successful as well and honestly i think that it it kind of felt natural to me as well them doing it in this episode because barry of course does have that father relationship with joe and now that both of his parents are gone joe is the only parental figure he has left and knowing that iris is joe's daughter probably was, even though Joe has told him to go for IRS for a very long time, it still makes sense that it would be something that would be weird to him because Joe sees both of them as his kids. So I, I, I kind of do get it at the same time.
2: Yeah, it also gave us some fun moments with Joe just yes. being, you know, like, uh, okay.
1: I, I'm going to leave now. <laughs>
2: It, in my mind, I know this is a good thing, but <laughs> I just, I, I can't see this right now. <laughs> yep. All right. We also knew that Harry and Jesse couldn't stay on Earth One forever, but I was surprised with how quickly it appeared that Harry was ready to return to Earth Two in this episode. While this would normally have been a downer moment for the episode, losing a talent like Tom Cavanaugh, but thankfully that won't actually be the case. By far the most enjoyable element of this episode was Harrison Wells' decision to return to Earth Two and leave an extra-dimensional doppelganger in his place to assist Caitlin and Cisco at Star Labs. It's such a goofy idea, but is well within the DC Silver Age tradition of goofy ideas that the Flash is born out of. My absolute favorite moment of this season so far was the scene where Harry essentially got to audition his replacement. This ended up giving Tom Kavanaugh a chance to demonstrate his brilliant range playing in short order a cowboy, a mime, a steampunk nerd, and a hipster. Though the hipsterish character is ultimately settled on and I agree you can never trust a mime, it's a safe bet Harry will be back again soon. Especially since next week's episode looks like it might see his successor go haywire or something go wrong with him. And if Wells 2, or I guess it's now 3, doesn't prove a threat, well, even better because it means another great Kavanaugh version of Wells' character to see. And Michael, in the first discussion we had this season, you mentioned that you were looking forward to seeing potentially a third or even more version of Harrison Wells. Are you excited to get that this week and then especially next week or would you prefer to stick with Harry?
1: Yeah don't get me wrong I love Harry and I want this character to continue being the primary Wells in the Flash because I thought he was great last season and his relationship each member of Team Flash is fantastic and has developed a lot in the past year and I also love Thawne from season one but I'm also super excited to see Tom Cavanaugh show us like you said his acting range and give us another version of the Harrison character. The hipster version is definitely going to be interesting, and you're right, the trailer for next week looks as if the new Earth-19 Wells is actually going to maybe have some sort of ulterior motive, and when it comes to Harrison Wells, I'd never expect anything less. I would wager that we could see Harry back again soon as well, and also another quick note, the concept of Team Flash grabbing another Wells from another Earth actually supports my crackpot theory and so my wish for Team Arrow this season on Arrow to bring another Earth's Dinah Laurel Lance, aka the Black Canary, to Earth-1, and once again have canary on their team so i know that's a little bit of a side side thing it has nothing to do with harrison wells but it kind of supports my theory maybe a little
2: oh absolutely and i love it and when you mentioned it a couple episodes ago for arrow i was all on board because i i love the katie cassidy character of laurel lance and so if she can come back as even dinah laurel lance then i i would be all for that because i already miss her so much Same. <laughs> so yeah i i'm all for that i think it fits, and and this concept, this episode, really does, like you said, set it up that we could see them do the same for Team Arrow, bring her back, and we know she's going to make some appearances this season as she has a series regular role across all four shows. So I think we have some really good opportunities, and this makes a lot of sense. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. I hope you're right that this is an indication that it might might be a possibility. Yeah. This episode also gives Barry one of the frustratingly few opportunities he's had since the series began to come up with a solution to defeat the villain of the week on his own. I get that The Flash as a show is an ensemble workplace drama, but I'd love to see more self-reliance, especially since the comic book Flash exhibits it in virtually every single issue. Michael, what did you think of giving Barry the win this week on his own, but still having the team needed to get him out of the mirror? Should we start to see a more self-reliant Flash, or is this iteration of the Flash a necessarily team-oriented Flash?
1: No, I agree with you. We need a more self-reliant Flash. I mean, the Flash is a character who usually, with some help in the Flash family, of course, but usually works alone and solves crimes, stopping criminals by himself. I mean, we seem to forget that Barry Allen himself is a scientist, and in the future, he even builds the Legends and Thawne's AI Gideon. So, based on all of that, I think it's extremely important to have a more self-reliant Flash on a show called The Flash. That being said i do love team flash and i'm interested to see how the new dynamic works out but barry does need to start stepping up his game and with harry now gone and there being a new wells in his place a new wells who knows absolutely nothing about this team at all even more so than earth two wells barry is really going to have to step up his leadership role in a very similar way that we want oliver to step up his leadership role on team arrow and take it back from felicity i think that barry needs to do that here as well
2: okay yeah i agree i'm hoping that it is and that's why i brought it up is it's been one of those things that i just didn't know if this version of the flash was going to abandon that idea that barry essentially is the hero by himself and he uses and has a team that helps him but when he's out in the field it's him against the bad guys you know yeah and you're absolutely right to point out that he's the one that creates gideon it's not cisco it's it's barry created gideon so So I think him stepping up, him being the leader, especially now that Harry's gone and the new Wells is just going to be a brain for hire, essentially, uh, or, you know, a ringer brought in to help solve some problems they couldn't on their own. I think Barry is absolutely going to have to step into that role as the leader of the team so that's good. Finally, Caitlin's killer frost powers are coming to full fruition on the Flash as we saw in this episode but is that something she and we as the viewers need to be afraid of? The closing scene of the episode showed Caitlin accidentally icing her shower growing a white streak of hair and donning a pair of blue lips but as of now there have still been no changes to her behavior to indicate that she's crossing over to the dark side like her Earth 2 doppelganger from last season. Yet Caitlin seems determined to keep her abilities a secret from the team from Team Flash. Earlier in the episode, she had to use her powers to free Barry from the mirror trap, but did it in secret so that no one from the team would realize what she had done. The question is why? We know that all of the zoom events occurred last season, but due to Team Flash's unanimous decision to not discuss the differences in the current timeline versus Barry's Flashpoint timeline, we can't be hundred percent sure that the team encountered Killer Frost as well, or that Caitlin knows the full extent of her doppelganger's powers. Even even if Killer Frost did encounter Team Flash in the revised timeline, that isn't enough to say that Caitlyn manifesting similar powers means that she'll also turn into a killer metahuman. So far, her powers have only been used for good, and there's no change in Caitlyn's disposition on the team. It's entirely possible that these powers could come to fruition and Caitlin remains the same kind scientist that we've known for two seasons now. That would actually be my preference. The powers could take her out of the lab and make her an integral part of Barry's crime-fighting team. If Captain Cold is going to be spending his time in the Legion of Doom on Legends, Caitlin could make a great frosty counterpart to Barry's lightning speed. So what do you think, Michael? Do you think it could be the fact that she keeps it a secret or an attempt to keep it secret could be what turns the sweet version of Caitlyn into a killer and ultimately into the evil killer Frost. Once she actually kills, it breaks something inside of her and she becomes a villain? Or will she become the Frost and a hero working with Barry?
1: Yeah, I mean, I could see it going either way. Going off of the concept that they did meet Earth 2 killer Frost last season, I think what worries Caitlyn so much is that she sees what another version of her has become. I mean, regardless of whether or not you were raised the same way as as your doppelganger or even turn out the same way I'm sure it would be jarring to see what path another version of you because it is still you chose and with Caitlyn having lost both Ronnie and Hunter as Jay in this timeline well potentially this timeline it's definitely a possibility that our favorite Miss Snow could go dark side on us and become the Killer Frost we know her as from the comics it would also be some interesting TV that being said with Cisco now possibly going out in the field as Vibe Caitlyn suiting up as Frost would be an exciting combo and thus like you said using her ice abilities to Mirror Captain Cold freeze gun in order to help the flash instead of hurt him that would be a lot of fun as well personally i think caitlin's descent to darkness would be the more interesting and entertaining route to take especially if cisco is already doing the same thing suiting up with barry as vibe Um, but there's definitely some merit to the idea of her becoming a hero alongside barry and cisco i mean after all they will love her either way powers or not
2: yeah exactly and i think it would be i think it would be fun if vibe and frost went out in the field together and they were fighting crime in addition to Barry and Kid Flash, or Jesse, or whoever yeah. else is out there helping him. So I think there's a, a massive potential for different team ups and different opportunities, and that's why I'm I'm pulling a little bit more for her to stay the sweet, lovable Caitlin that I love, and you know want to see, and then also be the hero that she can be now that she has these powers. So I, I think you're right. I think there is a lot more to to discover and a lot more possibility if she goes dark. Dark, and there's it probably will make for better television it's kind of one of those things where i know it's going to be better it's going to be more character development but i don't necessarily want to see it and yeah. i think we talked about that yes. last week and that's
1: <laughs> totally understandable <laughs> i'm with you yeah
2: all right well was there any last thoughts you had or anything i missed that you wanted to talk about this episode before we move on to arrow
1: gosh i don't think so i think we covered just about everything oh i was i was very glad to see captain cold back even if it was very brief
2: yeah you know and i'm hoping i'm hoping that we'll see him go up against barry again yeah and maybe you know full-on leading the rogues like we kind of saw at the beginning of this episode when they didn't have powers i was hoping for that to be a possibility in the future when they have powers kind of get the band back together yeah i agree all right with that i think it's about time to move on to arrow with the fourth episode entitled penance you <laughs> Lila asks Oliver to help break Diggle out of a military prison when Felicity disapproves of the plan Oliver goes in alone, unaware that Church has a new plan to secure his hold on Star City.
1: This week's episode brought a few different things into the mix of Team Arrow this week. Between losing a team member Overwatch taking control of the team and Spartan returning, we have a lot to discuss so let's start with Ragman. Right off the bat how awesome is it to see Ragman as a vigilante? I mean this guy is so awesome and probably one of the most useful heroes the Air Force has had outside of the big guns, which is why I knew Rory's decision to leave the team would not stick. I get why he felt the way he felt about working with Felicity in this episode, and it's completely understandable, even beyond understandable, but I think Felicity was spot on in this episode with her speech to Rory, that they have to not forget about what happened, but move on from it and be the better hero that they're both supposed to be. Compared to Renee, Evelyn, and Curtis, Rory hasn't had nearly as much screen time or training Oliver, at least from what we've seen past three episodes this season, and yet I feel like out of all the new vigilantes, we actually know him the best. I'm very excited to see where they can take this character this year and I'm rooting for him as he continues to honor his father's memory. Nico, what are your thoughts on Rackman as a character and did you appreciate the use of a speed this episode in order to bring him back into the
2: Yeah, Michael, I feel like he is the best new addition to the team. He seems most on board with Oliver's mission. He seems most willing to take and follow orders, and he seems to be the best suited or trained prior to joining the team. Each of those factors has a reason, however. We know he has a similar calling to be a hero as Oliver, something we know about him and none of the others, and his rags do a lot of the work for him. He even said he doesn't know how they do many of the things they do, and it's almost like the suit has a mind of own own or reacts to his emotions and instincts thus another reason he is better prepared or suited to the job right out of the gate i also feel like because of his backstory and a little bit the ham-fisted way they dealt with the whole felicity thing it actually gave us backstory allowed us to really get to know him a lot better than anyone other than curtis of the new recruits we know precious little about artemis and about as little about wild dog except that we learned this week that he was dishonorably discharged from the navy now michael i don't want to say anything bad about felicity so that often means i just don't say anything about her i was not a fan of her reaction to the diggle mission or sending the team against oliver to try and stop him which we'll discuss next but at least the part about bringing ragman back into the fold that was all right that's the best you're gonna get from me on her this week
1: fair enough and i'll probably echo that same statement but (laughs) the primary plotline this week and what we've been waiting for all season is the return of diggle to the main series with diggle held up in a secure prison, Lila and Oliver come up with a plan to break him out, and then as per usual, Felicity seems to disagree. Now, we just discussed Felicity being used, and in my opinion, rightly in regards to her role with Rory in the secondary story of this episode, but she seems to immediately be against breaking Diggle out of prison, even re- using Roy Harper as a reasoning for why Oliver should not break Diggle out. Honestly, I almost felt like I was watching last season when it came down to hearing Felicity talk to Oliver about what he was doing wrong. Not only that, but out of all the people on the team, I feel like Felicity should have been more willing to break Diggle out of prison because of her current guilt of losing Rory from the team, if not just because she knows that he's been framed and he's her friend. Plus, on top of all of that, she sends Oliver's own recruits to stop thus undermining his leadership role and authority once again. Nico, what were your thoughts on Felicity's stance with Oliver and Lila's plan? And do you think her argument, using Roy as an example, was well-founded or flawed? And do you think she was right to send in the recruits after their leader?
2: You know, sometimes it's like they just want me to hate the character when they do things like this. (laughs) I mentioned that I could not stand her being against helping John and then sending the new recruits out against Oliver to stop him from helping his best friend left in the world, his brother, and his original teammate. That just did not sit well. You're absolutely right to say that it once again undermined his leadership role on the team. We call it Team Arrow, not Felicity's superhero team for a reason. Oliver slash Green Arrow is the leader, the face of the team, and the inspiration for those that want to be on the team. Felicity may be an important member of the team in her intelligence-gathering and tech support role as overwatch but she is not the leader and that was evident by her actions in this episode i think it showed that she doesn't understand the responsibility of a leader she's quick to criticize she is able to say what oliver's doing wrong as a leader but she herself cannot step up and be the leader that she expects oliver to be
1: i completely agree yeah absolutely and i think something else that this episode does that really solidifies oliver and the rest of the team as permanent fixtures on Team Arrow, as opposed to Felicity, is that, you know, before Felicity showed up, Oliver was still able to do his job. And him and Diggle were still a good working team, and they still carried out the mission that they were meant to carry out. And even without the help of Felicity in this episode, Oliver and Lila were still able to break into the prison, no problem, and nothing went awry. Nothing nothing happened that would have caused them to need her to bail them out. And the fact that she has taken it upon herself to try and step into that leadership role every single episode this season... It just it just doesn't work for me as I know it doesn't work for you because really her role, while it may be important at this point in time, isn't really all that important in the long run for the team, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, it's almost as if they're accentuating the fact that on Team Arrow, everyone is replaceable except for Green Arrow. Yeah, And that's what this episode basically showed. Oliver does not need Felicity. She makes his life a lot easier, and she definitely helps him in his mission, but he could do things without her. He succeeded in breaking Diggle out. He's better when he has help, but he doesn't absolutely need it. Everyone else on the team needs Oliver to be there.
1: Yeah, bouncing off of that, I also wanted to take time to talk about Oliver actually breaking Diggle out of prison. I really enjoyed Oliver's use of a disguise during the prison break as opposed to using his identity of the Green Arrow. It reminded me a lot of the episode in Season 1 ironically entitled An Innocent Man which we know Diggle is and it also just so happens to be the fourth episode of the series and Season 1 just as Penance, the episode we're talking about today, is the fourth episode of Season 5. Very interesting Season 1 parallels and I wonder if that'll continue going forward since we've been told that the season is going to mirror Season 1 in a lot of ways. But that being said, um, in that episode Oliver disguises himself as a security guard in order to break into a high security prison during a prison break to save Laurel from being killed by the prisoners and I enjoyed that episode a lot back then and I enjoyed a lot how Oliver used a separate identity other than his vigilante identity here. I also like that when Oliver and Diggle were finally reunited that it didn't take the whole episode or even more than one scene really for Oliver to convince Diggle to serve his penance out for killing his brother by being Spartan again and defending lives instead of taking them as a soldier or just sitting here in prison by himself not doing anything and not being any good to anybody, especially his family. What were your thoughts Nico on this whole prison break plot this week, and do you agree with me on liking Diggle not being too against his rescue?
2: Yeah, I was worried that since we knew that Diggle would not want to go with Oliver, that this could result in a prolonged and drawn out issue that could drag down the progression of the story. Luckily, like you mentioned, Oliver was able to quickly convince Diggle to serve his penance for killing his brother as as Spartan, doing good work and helping save Star City, rather than sitting in a cell punishing himself. As for the actual prison break, I thought it was awesome. It was smart for the Green Arrow to not break Diggle out of prison because that would have hurt his mission and his image and could have exposed Spartan as Diggle and thus Oliver as the Green Arrow. Rather, using an almost Spartan-esque mask himself, Oliver broke him out using some Arrow tech and some Argus tech and a great escape using an AC-130 Stinger 2 plane and the Fulton surface-to-air recovery system, also known as the Sky hook. <laughs> we of course saw this used in the Dark Knight film and really tied the whole episode together and made it a, it grand enough to make it the feature of the episode. If they had merely busted through the gate in a truck, it would have lost something. Rather, with the intensity and size of this escape, it felt special enough for how big it was to get Diggle back on the team. And I think that was important to make it so big because it's so big to Oliver to have Diggle back.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I you know, Woo and I back when we did Longbow Hunters we always we, we didn't always claim, but we always noticed and talked about parallels that Arrow had to the Dark Knight trilogy and especially, you know, in season 3 and so far this season, we see that as well and, you know, some people like it, some people don't, but this was definitely a welcome parallel and I loved that part of the escape the most. In the big climax this week, Tobias Church infiltrates the ACU and attempts to take them all out but is somewhat foiled by the team, joined once again by Ragnar. After stabbing Mr. Terrific in the back, Church takes on Wild Dog, and wins, taking our favorite Rebel captive and torturing him by the episode's end. Besides the fact that they got beat, I loved seeing Mr. Terrific, Ragman, Wild Dog, and Artemis in action, and most importantly, working together as a team unit. At the beginning of the episode, Wild Dog defies direct orders again, and the team is shown to not function totally proper. But by the climax, which ironically enough was without Oliver, we see that the team, although still rough around the edges, works together as a powerful force of good in Star City, united. With the Green Arrow leading the team, this team could rival last year's teammate, Arrow, which, at its peak, included the Green Arrow, Black Canary, Arsenal, Speedy, and Spark. Nico, do you feel that like the team worked well together in this episode, at least by the end, compared to the fa- past few weeks? And what do you think Church is going to do with Renee?
2: Yeah, uh, and Oliver even int- mentioned that they were getting better at the very beginning of the episode, despite the issues that they obviously had in the almost bungled capture of that single, single uh, assailant in the very beginning. But that was why he allowed the, the team to essentially wrap things up themselves and hand the bad guys over to ACU without him. You know, once they eventually get Wild Dog back and are all up and running together. I agree. This team will be formidable. But but comparable to last year's team, especially when you add the original Red Arrow slash Arsenal, I, I, I don't agree. I, I don't think they're going to be or ever could be that formidable or that good. Even by the end of this season, I, I doubt this new team will be on the level of working together and just skilled amongst the members as that original team. Speedy, Arsenal, or Black Canary alone was better than Mr. Fantastic, Wild Dog, and Artemis are. And I think two of those will be still better than all three of the new members combined. I think Ragman, from a pure abilities and natural talent standpoint, is the only new member that I think even rivals an original Team Arrow member. But, that being said, I am glad that we are seeing massive improvements with these new characters, and even getting to the point where we can expect them to be functional and semi-competent when we see them in the future. And this episode went a long way in showing that and improving that. So, I like where they're going. I think it's good additions. I just don't think they meet the originals or live up to the originals and that's okay because that shows how special those originals were
1: yeah i guess in hindsight after hearing you talk about that i maybe agree with you more so than my original statement that that makes a lot of sense to me especially since speedy arsenal and black canary were all such important people not just to oliver as the green arrow but oliver as olive queen and uh, yeah i agree i think that this team could definitely be formidable and though they may not rival last year's team which we still know in Oliver's mind is kind of the end all be all. But nevertheless, I still think that they're going to be very important going forward. And I think that it's always possible to see members from that original team rejoin the group. And if that were the case, then they probably would be able to beat last year's team. But oh, yes, not I agree nor there. So kind of jumping off Team Arrow, DA Adrian Chase, better known in the DC Comics as the vigilante character vigilante has been someone I've enjoyed so far this season and has been a great replacement DA for Laurel this year. But I can't help but wonder if what we saw with him in this episode is a hint that we may see his vigilante persona rise up sooner than we think. Do you have any thoughts on this Nico?
2: Yeah I think he is beginning to believe in vin- in vigilantes now before actually being saved by them this week he always thought they were a crude tool and a perversion of justice. Now I think he's beginning to see that the only way to fight some of these bad guys like Church or even worse like Prometheus is with vigilantes. The regular cops and legal system are not equipped to handle these guys and their threat to the city. That That is why I think sooner rather than later, we'll see Adrian Chase become frustrated with the legal system and begin fighting crime, much like Oliver is, both in the light and the dark. I'd be surprised if we don't see him before the mid-season finale and four-part crossover.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Finally, this week's flashbacks were great. I've really been enjoying Oliver's descent into the Braffa, and this week's episode was no exception, and actually might be my favorite week. Although we see that Ali still has a conscience, he's becoming the merciless killer that we met at the beginning of season one, after being rescued from Leon you in the pilot if last week's episode was about trust this week's is about staying who you are we know that Oliver has changed in the past 10 years but in many ways he hasn't in fact for the first time D- Diggle even tells him not to change at the end. Of, by the end of this episode Nico what were your thoughts on this week's set of flashbacks and is there anything we missed in our discussion today that you wanted to discuss
2: yeah I did love that comment at the end when Diggle's like don't ever change because it was always <laughs> there's things that you need to change You gotta, you gotta change and then now it's like like don't ever change (laughs) that's great i love flashbacks especially on this series and this season has been great oliver's initiation into the Bratva has been as great as i expected and really i'm glad they dealt with it this season because it was one of the plot holes well not really a plot hole but plot developments from the first season that didn't make a whole lot of sense how exactly did he learn to speak russian and become a member of the Bratva while on the island well of course we knew that he did not spend the entire five years on the Nu, but still, finally getting to see that part of Oliver's development has been great. I can't wait to finally see Dolph Lundgren's character in the coming weeks as the hunt for his character picks up in the flashbacks. I think it's good stuff that I'm really looking forward to in future episodes. As again, probably even more than a lot of what we're seeing in the current timeline, I'm more interested in the flashbacks. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of really good stuff and a lot of a lot of amazing things that could parallel between the flashbacks. As- this year and the current story, and I think we'll just have to wait and see where that will go. All right, that being said, I think we're done with our discussion on Arrow this week. I thought it was a great episode, and I, I think you did too, Nico. And I guess we'll move on to this week's episode of DC's Legends of Tomorrow entitled Shogun. <laughs>
2: Nate is shocked to learn that he has powers and accidentally lands himself and Rey in feudal Japan. Sarah, Vixen, and Rory agree to find Nate and help him master his powers so he can defend a Japanese village from the Shogun and an army of samurai warriors. Meanwhile, Jax and Stein stay back to help repair the ship and find a secret compartment, but decide not to tell the rest of the team what they learned.
1: Starting right where we left off last week, the JSA's Vixen has stowed away on the Wave Rider in order to kill He-Wave, who th- she thinks is responsible for the death of our man last episode. While this is definitely not a good start to her joining the Legends, it makes sense that she would start with Mick as the prime suspect for Rex's murder. That being said, I think Vixen is a great addition to the team, and between her, Firestorm, the Atom, and now Nate, the team is being stacked with superpowers, which is what I've always wanted to see on this show since the beginning, and I've always thought there was a lot of potential in doing that. Nico, do you like Vixen as the latest addition to the Legends, and what do you think she'll add to the team? Regardless on whether or not we liked her, Hawkgirl added a tie-in to the main plot last season, as well as being a love interest for Rey and someone for Sarah to train. What role could Vixen be be playing now that the hawks rip hunter and captain cold are gone
2: you know i do like her and i was glad that the whole suspecting the legends of killing our men only lasted a few minutes and did not dominate a large portion of this episode i think we spent enough time last week dealing with the jsa not trusting the legends rehashing it again this week would have been too much vixen with her magical amulet that gives her the powers of the jungle animals adds another superpowered member to the legends and i like that i'm glad that not all of the legends are superpowered however but it is nice to have a good mix especially now that Ray lost his suit adding Vixen will pick up some of that weight until Ray can create a new Adam suit but as for her role I think she is another strong female to balance out the very male team. And she and Sarah, I think, will become fast friends and training partners as we saw them naturally pair off together this week. However, since she was obviously in love with our man, I don't see her being a love interest for any of the legends. Although they do seem to be starting something between Ray and her with her saying initially that he was not a real hero in the second episode and then apologizing to him and making friends with him in this episode. But I hope they don't rush into anything and take away from her grief story arc and the strong motivation that brought her to joining and continuing with the Legends team.
1: I completely agree. And why is it that Ray always seems to be the one to have some sort of love interest?
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right.
1: As Vixen tries to kill Mick, a superpower Nate stops him with his new steel powers. As it turns out, much like Girder from The Flash, Dr. Haywood can now transform his body into a metallic alloy that grants him super strength and, invul- and invulnerability. Also a lot like the Men's Colossus. After referencing his grandfather, Commander Steel, and his comic book identity as Citizen Steel, Nate calls himself simply Steel by the end of episode 10. No, not simply Steel, just the word Steel. With Nate being cured of his disease and now gaining super abilities, he's bound to become a more vital part of the team. Even with this episode largely about his own personal time in Japan, I loved his Master Yoda reference, by the way. I'm interested going forward and seeing how Steel navigates himself with the rest of the team. We know Sarah has taken over leadership duties until Rip has returned, but she doesn't know nearly as much about history as a historian like Nate Nate does. My guess is that the new steel will step up and become the second half of the rip of Rip punter by piecing together alterations to history and determining how they should go about repairing, paralleling Sarah's role as the team leader and pilot. Nico, what do you think about Nate becoming steel in this episode? Was it too much or do you think it will help add to the legends going forward, especially with the Legion of Doom pending?
2: Yeah, I think you're right on this analysis. I think Nate will become an integral part of the team, both as a hero in the fight, but also as just Nate in the analysis of where to go to to battle the time travelers that are wreaking havoc throughout the timeline. I think his keen understanding of history and his ability to notice changes in the timeline will allow him to advise Sarah as to where to go next, what has changed, and with more experience with the team, become a great second-in-command sort of an advisor. We know Martin will be the tactical analyst and help give Sarah ideas and tactics, but Nate can fill in some of the holes, and with the three of them working together, Sarah will be able to make the best choices for the team. I said last week I thought Nate's addition to the team was a great move. Now that Citizen, or rather just Steele's addition, has been made clear, that's even better. I think it's going to be really good.
1: Yeah, I do too. I really like the Nate character a lot, and I think there's a lot of potential with him going forward. And I think him kind of having his dream of seeing history come true is a very cool thing for him as just a character and just as a fellow human being along the way, Ryder. So I think there's a lot of potential. Yep. One of the saddest things in this episode was definitely Ray having to make the choice to let Nate destroy the Addams. Suit, which had fallen into enemy hands once again. One thing I thought was made clear uh, to both to Ray, both last season and last season of the last season of Arrow, when he returned after being shrunk, was that Ray Palmer is a hero with or without his armor. But it seems as if this is just not something Ray has figured out for himself yet, though he's certainly on his way to it. With the Adam suit now destroyed, what is Ray's place on the team? Besides brainstorming with Professor Stein, how is he going to contribute to the Legends? And do you think he'll end up rebuilding and improving the Adam suit, Nico?
2: Yeah, I sort of jumped the gun on that question. I think he'll definitely. Definitely build another suit whenever he can find the necessary dwarf star material and other parts that make up the suit. But until then, unfortunately, I think we're going to see that same story we got last week and this week as well. The whole Ray needs to learn he can be a hero without the suit story arc. I got to say, I'm already sick of it. So if we can expect even more of it in the coming weeks, I can only imagine how sick of it I'll be by then. But, you know, by the time he rebuilds the Adam suit 2.0, I think I will definitely be ready to see him back in action as uh, a hero. I don't know what he's going to do other than attempt to be a hero without the suit, maybe learn some other weapons, maybe learn to use his brain rather than just rushing in, in the suit and learn to and analyze the situation and find the best tactics. Maybe that will be what he ultimately learns from this situation,
1: which would be great because that would ultimately apply to his role as the atom as well. Once he does rebuild the suit, because I, I believe he will as well.
2: Yeah. And they won't have to make him the idiot that always gets caught or always gets uh, captured captured and and loses his suit every week because right. he's not rushing in and acting like a fool <laughs> exactly
1: the thing that's constantly been on my mind this season of legends of tomorrow and you know this because i talk about it every week Miko, is that since the reverse flash seems to be the primary antagonist with his legion of doom not far behind what does this have to do with flash we know yabarthan never does anything without first trying to hurt kill or humiliate barry allen we know this and we've talked about this ad nauseum over the past three episodes three episodes two episodes well we're on our way to finally having that question answered as Firestorm finds Rip Hunter's secret compartment aboard the Wave Rider where there's a message from the Barry Allen of 2056 10 years after the time that the legends met future version of Oliver Queen and the Green Arrow who's Connor Hawke aka John Dick Jr. Nico what do you think Barry's message entailed obviously it's a warning of some kind but what could be so bad that Barry is having to warn Rip about so far in the future and when did Rip even meet Flash
2: yeah I imagine that this is Barry from the time of Eobard Thawne's emergence as reverse Flash Um, I don't know if that exactly lines up with the timeline, but that's my idea of what it is. And since Eobard is from the future and Barry and his interactions are much like the doctor and river song, essentially going in opposite directions along their timeline with the more Barry becomes the flash, the earlier he, he sees Eobard's timeline. They are going in opposite directions on their timelines. Like I mentioned, much like when the doctor met river, it was the last time she'd ever see him. And the first time she met him was much later in his timeline time travel sure can get all timey-wimey wibbly-wobbly anyway I imagine Barry in 2056 has noticed the disappearance of reverse flash from his time and suspects that he has gone back in time to change the timeline. The significance of the 2056 date of the message is that it is after the April 25th, 2024 flash going goes missing article that Iris wrote. And we saw in season one. So my guess is, is that the message that Barry left for rip mentions what exactly happens to him when he vanishes in 2024 and the necessity of that playing out a allowing him to die in the future by that late in Barry's run as the Flash he'd know that going back and changing things would irrevocably change the timeline and cause all kinds of problems maybe even some that could alter all of reality and thus Barry makes the sacrifice to allow himself to die rather than alter the timeline it's just a guess that it has something to do with his disappearance and possible death and I'm still working out all the details
1: no that makes a lot of sense I think because we haven't really figured out well we haven't actually Actually seen that newspaper article again this season after Flashpoint so we don't really know what has changed or if anything in that regard has changed to the timeline since Barry's returned right and that's definitely a very interesting theory that this could be Barry after that time and that maybe that's the time period he woke up in I don't know I don't know I, like you said you're still working out the details and I'm still wrapping my head around exactly what your theory is but I, I think there's definitely a lot of merit to that and I am really excited to see what that means going forward maybe even seeing a future version the Flash. That would be very cool.
2: That would be. Since we got it with Oliver last season, it would be fun to see the older and more world-weary version of the Flash.
1: Finally, I want to just reference before we close this week's podcast that the family that helped Nate and Ray in Japan this I guess that they helped in return, are the Yamashiros. For those who don't know the significance or forgot not understanding why Ray asked in this episode, Tatsu Yamashiro, aka Katana, was a major part of Arrow Season 3 in the flashbacks as she helped her husband train Oliver to take on the triad and even in the present time when she along with Team Arrow and the Atom helped them storm Nanda Parbat even having to kill her husband with the same blade that is seen in this episode called Soul Taker Sword. The family in this week's episode were her ancestors. Nico, did you catch this Easter egg and is there anything else you wanted to mention this week?
2: I did, but I admit I had to look it up to be sure it was Katana's family name. <laughs> I suspected with the importance they put on the family blade that it would be the same blade she used in the future. But I wasn't solid on, the, on her family name so I had had to go back and actually look that up to be sure but after looking it up all the pieces fit I love when they give real fans like you Michael little things to find like that because it just makes this series so much better and it makes the entire Arrowverse that much better
1: Yep, I agree that being said I think that just about wraps up our discussion on Legends tomorrow this week I actually am really looking forward to the rest of the season I wasn't necessarily at the beginning but I'm starting to really get interested in what all this future stuff with the reverse flash has to mean and, and how the team will work together with Rip
2: Yeah, normally this show is my least favorite of the DC Nation uh, shows that we cover on the podcast, but this week I think it might have actually been the best episode of the week. Uh, The Arrow one was really good, and the Diggle Rescue probably put that one over the top, but Shogun was probably the best DC Legends episode we've had since probably the pilot, so I, I, I really was impressed this week with this show. So, I I liked it and I don't always like this show. All right. With that, I think it's about time to move into the closing and we'll talk about next week's episode where we continue the fall 2016 TV season for DC Nation with an episode of Gotham, Supergirl, Flash, Arrow and DC Legends of Tomorrow. So make sure to join us for all of that. But for now and most of the season, we're going to have Dan's pre-recorded closing.
0: At our across the airways podcast Network website across the that's you can check out all of our podcast shows available as their own individual programs get in the iTunes store can Google Play Store guys for the podcast shows on our network we have the DC nation podcast located at DC nation across that's DC nation which reviews popular DC comics related TV shows and movies there's also the Marvel verse podcast located at Marvelverse Podcast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's Marvel vs. Podcast.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews Marvel comics related TV shows and movies. Again, we also have Thronescast a podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website com. Again, that's Throatscast.acrosstheairways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at AcrossTheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes core game of thrones like the walking dead doctor who star wars rebels supernatural and more concluding sitcoms such as the big bang theory got the muppets also you can listen to across the airways the dc nation podcast Thronescast, cast the game of thrones podcast got the marvelverse podcast got the mixed radio station code by jack Stifles, stitcher radio or if you use apple devices download the podcast box app got if you're on a windows or android device you can download our apps from the amazon marketplace got the windows marketplace got a regular windows or windows phone app because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback. Got a TV show's we review. Provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast as an experience. Or just want to say, Do you like what we're doing? Email us at Again, that's across the airways, Could get us across the airwaves, Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle, Google Plus. or leave us a voicemail by calling 773 809 3363 Could get at 773 809 3363 Call so with sending us an email. Please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Get the subject line. Give you our sending us glister feedback you want us to read. God, the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies get television events. along with this content. The ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic Con. God, it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic Con special.
2: So, once again, for our ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy Wukim, Joshua Mercury, James Heffel, and Steve Steve Nostro. I'm Nico Reistek.
1: And I'm Michael J. Petty.
2: And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys next week, and I hope you enjoyed another week of DC Television.
1: to our regularly scheduled program.